First John chapter number three, you guys are probably already there. And uh, we're going to read just a few verses this morning. Um, so, so what we've been talking about in, in, this, in this passage of Scripture are, are some fruits of, of a person being a believer, or, or another way of saying that is some identification marks. There's some things that happen in an individual's lives that, that show them to be Christians. And what we know is this, um, 2 Corinthians tells us in chapter 13, I believe it is, that we're to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And, and so there's a reason why Paul teaches the church of Corinth to examine themselves, because being a believer is not an act that we do. There would be no reason for Paul to say, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, if it was like, okay, did you get this, or did you do this in your lifetime, or did you have this done, right? There's no reason for us to examine ourselves to see if Christ is in us if it's something that we have done, right? If it's like, you know, if someone tells me to do 20 jumping jacks and I'll be saved, then I don't ever have to examine myself to see if I'm saved as long as I did those 20 jumping jacks, right? So uh, Paul says this to us because salvation is a supernatural act of God in a person's life. He comes and makes residence uh, by his spirit in our hearts. And when he does that, there are certain changes that take place. There are tra- there's this transformation. If anybody be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There's this, there's this new creation, and, and this new creation begins to bear different fruits than what it did before. And these fruits that the new creation begins to bear are fruits that identify a person as a, as a believer. And these fruits, these fruits, folks, are so important because I, I know this from a, um, my personal testimony is it's very easy to grow up in a Christian home. It's very easy to grow up with all the right teaching and to have your head full of this information um, and, and to really to know all of the facts about who God is, about what being a Christian looks like, and even to, to um, do some works, but to never, ever see the fruits of Christ in your heart. And, and to go through life with a false assurance of our salvation because everything... Everything that has to do with our salvation is based upon what we have done, and very little of it, if any, is based upon what God is doing in us. I mean, literally, you couldn't look, I couldn't look at myself in my late teen years. You know, I, I believe that I was saved, but I, but I doubted a lot. I could not look at myself and see anything supernatural in me at all. I could not see God's presence in me, even though I did all of the right things, the things that I was taught. I had a lot of information, but that information was not... Was not a part of my lifestyle. That information had not changed my life. And if that information doesn't change our lives, then it's, then it, then it's really just information. And listen, God's not going to give us a test when we get to heaven and see how much information we know, is he? The Bible says he's going to open up our hearts. He knows us. And so these fruits are important that you see these things being evidenced in your life. And one of the greatest challenges to this is that you're going to, you and I, because of, because of pride, when we see that there is lacking spiritual fruits, but yet there is spiritual knowledge, like a lot of people in the Bible, that's a big battle. For somebody who has all of the spiritual knowledge to stop and say, I'm lost. I have no spirit of God living in me, and I know that but I have all this spiritual knowledge, so how can I be lost if I have all this spiritual knowledge, but I have no fruits at all? 
And that's where it becomes very, very humbling for a, for a spiritual person to stop and say, you know something, I need Jesus. Why do you think the Pharisees had a great wrestling match with being truly saved? They had all this knowledge, but they did not recognize that they were sinful. And in with all of the knowledge that they had, all of the pride and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, it only made them more in need of Jesus. So these fruits are important to evaluate in your own life, to see where you're at spiritually. Does God live inside of you? And the, and the two that we've looked at, first of all, let me say this. When a person is truly saved, the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26 that they are given a new heart, that they have a, before they are saved, they have a heart of stone, right? Which stone is called, is, you could compare that to a hard heart, Right? a rebellious heart, uh, an angry heart. And these are the types of words that you would describe a stone heart to be. But he takes out a, a heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh, which is like a soft heart, a, a humble heart, a, a kind heart. Uh, uh, all of these things describe the heart that God gives us. In other words, the heart that we had before we were saved is the complete opposite of the heart that we have after we're saved. I was teaching the teenagers on Wednesday night about eternal security, and I said, we were talking about something similar to this, and I said, you know, for a, Christ, or for, a, for a human being, it's like you're walking this way in life, and you meet the truth of God's word. You meet it face to face about Jesus Christ being the Son of God, about him dying on the cross for our sins, about his spirit. You meet the truth of the gospel, right? And that the Holy Spirit of God turns you around to where you're now going that direction. That's what salvation is. We, we talk about the word repent, and that's what it means. It means I'm going this way, but now I'm going this way, and the only way that that's possible is that God in heaven caused me to do it. Does that make sense? That's the supernatural work of the Lord. So you see, there's a lot of people that are walking this way. They meet the gospel. They meet this Jesus who died on the cross. They meet this God who is, who is just and holy and kind and loving. And they, and they get all of these facts, and they continue to go the same direction, and they conclude that all of these facts is what makes them saved, but they don't understand that it is, it is that they're walking the other direction that makes them saved. You see, the work of God in a person's heart is a supernatural work that takes a person going one direction and turns them so that they're now going in the completely opposite direction. That's what fruit these fruits are. So hard, rebellious heart, soft, kind, forgiving, loving heart. Lost, saved. We talked about the last couple of weeks. The first evidence is a love for righteousness. Knowing God equals loving God equals pursuing godliness. Um, 1 John chapter number 3, verses 1 through 3, verses 3, it says, And everyone who has this hope, everyone who has, has the hope of one day being in the presence of God and being in the likeness of Christ, the Bible says, everyone who has this hope purifies themselves, right? So one of the evidences that we, that we exhibit if we are truly a believer is that our heart yearns for righteousness. If your heart, I'm, I'm not saying that you're perfect, Okay. Because I wouldn't be up here and we wouldn't be in here, right? Because there's no one in here that is perfect. But I'm saying this, that for a true believer, your heart will yearn for that which is right. Your heart will yearn for it. It will, it will love it. It will cherish righteousness, although it constantly uh, struggles with unrighteousness. And Paul says it in, math, in, in Romans 7 where he says, The things that I desire, I don't do. 
But you know what's amazing about his statement is that what matters was not what he did, but what he desired. What was, what was his pursuit? Paul wanted to understand. Paul wanted to know. Paul wanted to do. But Paul struggled just like most of us do as well. Now, with this in mind, this brings us to our second thought in this text. Okay, In striving to do what is right or in striving to be right, one thing that can become very evident is that people can become obstacles. Is that not true? In your pursuit of righteousness, isn't it true that other people can get in your way? In your pursuit of being right, when somebody tells you that you're wrong, that's an obstacle to you being right. So what John does is John brings out the second command, and the second command is not, is not less than the first command. It is equal to the first command. It is simply different. It is love righteousness, pursue righteousness, treasure righteousness, but command number two is love people. Love people. In our pursuit of righteousness and our pursuit of right, we never want to get lost in this, in this selfish environment where we begin to forsake people. We begin to see people as stumbling blocks or obstacles for us to get accomplished what we're pursuing. The Pharisees are a good example of that. They pursued this external righteousness, and guess who most of their problems were with? It was with people. And we, as Christians, can get into that same boat where we are so interested in being right and we're so interested in being righteous that we can begin to step over the top of people to get where we need to be. And what John says is this. John says that's not acceptable. It's not acceptable, nor is it supernatural, for us to pursue righteousness without loving people. What is supernatural and what is acceptable is for us, it's for you and for me to pursue righteousness while loving people. You see, that's the supernatural piece of it. It's both parts together. The Pharisees pursued this righteousness, but they stepped on people as they went. Was that acceptable? And there are others who pursue love and pursue people but have no righteousness. Is that acceptable? What makes it supernatural is when we pursue righteousness in light of and for the purpose of blessing people. Jesus Christ is a wonderful example of that. I don't want to get a lot into that because next week we're going to unpack Jesus as the greatest example of this in the verses that follow. But this love for people must be preeminent right next to our love for being right. And not right in our own eyes, but right, most importantly, in God's eyes. So let's look at our text, and I want to give you this morning five things that are going to be a struggle for you to love righteousness and love people, or five obstacles to you loving people properly if you're pursuing right, if you're pursuing to be right. Okay? And we're just going to look at these five things. The Bible says this in verse number 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, 
that we should love one another. And just stop right there. We'll move on in a moment. Notice that the command to love each other is a command that didn't start with Jesus, but you can go all the way back. Genesis chapter number 2, I believe it is, when Jesus Christ brings Eve into the picture, he tells Adam that Adam is to leave his father and mother and to cling or cleave unto his wife, right? What what the Lord is telling Adam, even in the garden season, was, Adam, you need to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You need to love others. In Leviticus, when the Lord lays down the law for the Jewish people, he tells them to love others. And this principle doesn't just... And we, and we do see a lot of God's wrath and a lot of God's judgment in the Old Testament... And so we, we, we often mistake or look at, okay, Jesus is this loving one in the New Testament and God is this wrathful one in the Old Testament. But the command to love others, let me say it this way, the expectation of God for his people to love others is not a New Testament truth. It is a biblical truth. It is a truth that has, has been God's standard and God's expectation for his people from the foundation of the world. So don't look at it. He, he even says back in chapter number 2, he says in verse 7, Behold, I am writing to you no new commandment. And he goes on to describe the fact that here's the commandment, to love each other. So he's not writing us something new. He's telling us something that has been since the foundation of the world, something that God has always expected of his people and continues to expect of his people. But not only does he expect it of his people now, but get this, he has put it into their hearts now as well. The Bible says that the the love of God has been poured out into our hearts, right? So he has not only, not only, he doesn't only expect it, But he has put it, if you're a believer, he has placed it into your heart to fulfill it. He has not only accomplished it for you, but he's enabled you to carry it out to its fulfillment. So let's look at these things that um, John tells us that, again, can be obstacles to our loving other people. And that if we're not careful, we'll fall prey. Here's what John does. It's important that we understand these two thoughts. Number one is John identifies lost people with these, four, these five things. He says, here are five things, five principles, five characteristics of people who don't love and are not saved. But number two, he also warns the church. He warns those who are believers about these five dangers. Because he knows that even though... For a believer, these truths are planted in their heart. Satan is going to come after them in, with all that he has to keep them from representing Christ properly. And Christ obviously is, God is love, right? So let's look at these five things together. He says, we should not be like Cain, all right, so mark that in your Bible. The first thing that he says is we shouldn't be like Cain. We go back to Genesis chapter number four, and we see um, the, the teaching about Cain and his brother Abel, and um, God required a sacrifice from them, and obviously the sacrifice had to be according to even in the garden when, when God made the first sacrifice, when he killed the animal and he clothed Adam and Eve with it in Genesis chapter three. So God laid forth a foundation that the sacrifice would be a blood sacrifice. 
The scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. So Cain and Abel both knew that the sacrifice that was expected of God was a blood sacrifice. Abel brings a blood sacrifice from the, from the animals, and Cain brings a, a sacrifice from the fruit of the ground, which is what he did. He brought, he brought the works of his own hands, and we could say that Abel did as well, but, but Abel's sacrifice was acceptable before God because it was what he required. Okay, Then Cain gets very angry, and he's, his Bible says that his countenance falls. In other words, he gets depressed. And God comes to him and says, Cain, I'm giving you a second chance. Okay, He says, make the right sacrifice and everything will be okay. But if you refuse to make the right sacrifice, he says, sin lies at the door or sin waits for you. And what he's saying is, is there's a greater sin that you're getting ready to commit if you don't do the right thing. And, and ultimately, you guys know the story. Cain then kills his brother Abel. And, uh, and, and, and then it becomes a vagabond, becomes a, a, an exile. And God says, you're going to go throughout the earth and everyone's going to be against you. And um, Cain says, I can't bear this. You, you, you know the story. But here's kind of some of the things that, that, that John points out to us in this text. When he, says, he says, don't be like Cain. And I'm going to read the rest of the text and then I'm going to come back and break it down. He says, and who was the evil one and murdered his brother? And why did he murder him? Because, he, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that he passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Okay? So it's important that we see, again, the principle is if you're a, hate, if a hateful person, a murderer, whether it be physically or in your heart, that it's not, a, it's not symbolic of somebody being a believer. If somebody, is a, if somebody is hateful, if you're sitting in our congregation this morning and you have hate in your heart towards someone, okay, I'm not going to say that you're lost. What I am going to say is that you should be concerned about your salvation. Okay, your lost condition is between you and God. But what the scripture says is hate in the heart is not a mark of a believer. It's not a sign of a converted, regenerate, new heart. So I'm not going to tell you you're lost or you're not lost, but what I will tell you is, as the scripture says, evaluate yourself because this is not a sign of a believer. And make sure that you are truly a believer because one day you're going to stand before God. Here's some dangers. Here's what he says. He says, who, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. Now, the first, the first danger we see in this text is kind of a spiteful attitude. Um, the word evil one here means somebody who has a, a spiteful spirit who desires to take other people down with them. In other words, Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable before God, and God said to Cain, you're going to go down because you have made the wrong sacrifice. And what Cain, the, the idea of Cain's heart here is that Cain's heart developed this attitude of, if I'm going to go down, then you're going to go down with me, Abel. Right? So he gets this spite in his heart towards Abel. His his lack of doing what God hath said hath brought judgment on him, and his desire is not that that judgment just be upon him, but he wants to commute that judgment to everyone else who is around him. You've heard the saying, misery loves company, right? There are people that you've met in your life that every time something goes wrong in their life, they aren't satisfied with their problems being their problems, but they're going to drag you into those problems with them, right? Right? 
This is not the heart of somebody who is in love with people, but this is the heart of somebody who is spiteful, who desires to drag people into their miseries with them or to tear them down or to to fall with others and not by themselves. This is what Cain's attitude was. He's like, God, if you're not going to accept my offering, you're going to condemn me for making this offering, then I'm going to make sure that my brother also suffers as well. I'm going to bring him into this situation. Proverbs 14, verse 30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. We see this in the life of John at the end of the book of John when, when Peter, or really Peter, comes to the Lord and the Lord says to Peter, hey Peter, when you were in this life, you went where you wanted and you did what you wanted to do, but there is coming a day where you will be carried and you will go places that you don't want to go. And, and what Jesus is talking about is the way that Peter's going to die. And historically, we believe that Peter was, was sacrificed upside down. And you know what Peter's response was? What about John? Right? What about him? I'm going to go through all of this suffering. Well, surely the other disciples are going to go through this suffering too. You're not going to put me through this suffering by myself. Peter's problem was he wanted other people to go through his struggles, wanted other people to be a part of his difficulties, wanted to drag other people down with him. You know what Jesus says to to John or to Peter? What does he say? What's that to you? I mean, that wasn't even in the Greek. <laughs> that was English. That's exactly what he said. What's that to you? It's none of your business what happens to John. What matters is what happens to you. So we get this spiteful spirit. We look at other people's blessings and we say, they don't deserve those blessings. I deserve those blessings. And we begin to become spiteful because other people have it better than we have it. And we think we deserve what they deserve. And we develop not a loving spirit towards those people, but we, deserve, we develop a hateful spirit towards those people. Have you ever had someone in your life that was just extremely blessed? Maybe even it was a lost person. In Psalm chapter number 2, it talks about how long, Lord, are you going to let the heathen be blessed? And we see all of the abundance that they have, and instead of being happy for them, instead of, instead of praising God for, for letting it rain on the, on the just and the unjust, we complain, we murmur, and we're spiteful towards them because they have been blessed and we have not been blessed. The, re- the reality of it is, folks, is that we've all been blessed. Amen? We've all been blessed. A sign of a believer is to celebrate the blessings of others. And I just, I'll just confess to you personally, that is, it's, a, it's a battle, isn't it? It's a battle. I've, I've heard people tell me, Pastor John, I have worked so hard for God, but yet he blesses other people more than he blesses me. And it's like, what, what, are, you, what are you saying? Do we not realize what God has done for us? 
and what he has sacrificed for us. And we look at other people's blessings instead of praising God for other people being blessed, we become spiteful towards them because they have more than we have. They have a nicer car. They have a nicer house. They have a bigger salary. They have a better uh, family, whatever it might be. We become spiteful of them because we see something that they have that we don't have. That's what happened to Cain. Cain saw that Abel had, his, had the Lord's acceptance. And get this, God even gave Cain a chance to make it right, but Cain wouldn't do it. He was already so spiteful against his brother that he was going to go down, but so was his brother going to go down with him. If we're going to have loving hearts towards people, we've got to get rid of that spitefulness that we have. We can do it as a church. We can look at another church here in town, and they can be growing, and they can be, the Lord can be really blessing them, and we can become spiteful towards them and not thankful to God for blessing them. We forget that God is what? Big old S, O, he's sovereign, isn't he? First danger you're going to have is you're going to have that danger of spite. Number two, watch this. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was the evil one, and murdered his brother. So Cain murders Abel. We know the story. But what's interesting is, is that in the Hebrew, the, the Lord, the author, uses a, a term uses um, a Hebrew word that describes murder in a different way than it describes it in any other context when dealing with somebody actually killing someone else. What the term that he uses here in Genesis chapter number 4 and also here is this. He's describing a sacrificial style of murder. In other words, what Cain did to Abel is Cain did to Abel exactly what Abel did to the sacrifice. Here's what happened. Cain became so angry at God that he said, I will give you your blood sacrifice, but it will be my brother. He uses the term to describe Cain's murder of his brother Abel to describe the same thing that took place every year when a sacrifice was made. What was happening is, is that Cain was settling the score with God. Cain was settling the score with God. And listen, folks, we can never settle the score with God. We can never even develop this attitude of settling the score with God. There is no score to settle with God. He says... I'll show you, I will sacrifice my brother. What a horrible, horrible thing to do. When we begin to see this unfold, we can see why God put such a horrible, horrific punishment on Cain. It wasn't just that he killed his brother, but his attitude towards God, his attitude towards everybody was a horrible, horrible attitude. If we get the attitude in our lives of getting even, not, not just with God, but listen, Cain didn't kill God, did he? You know, oftentimes where your attitude of getting even with God is manifested, it's manifested in your getting evil with people. That's where it's manifested. That's where it's revealed. You can't get even with God, but you can get even with people. That's what Cain does. Cain sacrifices his brother to get even with God, and when we have this getting even mentality, Anybody who harms us, anybody who does wrong against us, we're going to get even with them. 
we're going to struggle loving them, aren't we? It's impossible to love them because we ultimately hate them. First Peter 3 and 9, the Bible says, Do not be repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, blessing, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. In Romans 12, verse 19 through 21, in your own time, just read that. The Lord says, don't repay evil for evil. Don't look to get revenge. Don't look to get even, but leave it in God's hands. Even Jesus Christ said when he was getting ready to hang on the, hung on the cross, he said that when he was reviled, he did not revile again, but he committed those things to, he committed those things to God. He committed those things to God. Cain's problem was is that he didn't love his brother. He was angry with God. He was going to get even with God. And this destroyed his love for anyone. Go on with me. He says number three. He says, and I keep getting lost here. Um, because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And let me go back a little bit. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, number three is the, the, the third challenge to our having a loving spirit is if we, have, if we get status by comparison. Well, what happens here is that Cain began to compare himself to his brother. He began to almost, almost like a competition, right? So, so here's my brother, and there's no one better to compete with than your own brother, right? Right? Come on. Somebody. Anybody in here have a brother? I mean, I grew up with four, so I know what it's like to compete with your brother. That's, that, that was Cain's. Can I, can I say this to you? And we live in a competitive culture, don't we? Can I, can I submit to you something that might surprise you? That... that an overly competitive spirit can do harm to your loving people? Even to the point where an overly competitive spirit can do harm to your loving your own brother. That's what Cain and Abel, they, they were brothers. And, and here Cain says, hey, you accepted my, and, and he does this, start doing this comparison back and forth of, Oh, is he better than me? Or does he think he's better than me? Or do you think he thinks he did better than me? And so he's got this, this attitude going on inside of him, this building up of competition. And then that's, and usually that's what starts this idea of getting even, right? Be, be careful with that. Be careful with that when it comes to religious theology, when it comes to your pursuit of right. Your pursuit of right is not, is not there for you to crumble over people as you go. And it's not there. Honestly, our pursuit of right is not there for us to be right, is it? Our pursuit of right is for us to be close to him so that we can then help people, isn't it? Isn't that why we're to be right? We have something to offer others? But not if it becomes competitive. Me being right has now, is now about me being, more, uh, me, being, me being more smart. Okay. You can exit, you can delete that part from the video. All right. About me being smarter than the other preacher down the street, right? It's about me being smarter than my brother or my sister or my parents. It's about me being better. And this competitive spirit can really destroy a heart Spitefulness can destroy a heart for love, but so can competitiveness. 
Here's what the Lord says in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. Not that we dare to classify ourselves or to compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they desire themselves, when they measure them, the desire, when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are not wise. This is that competitive spirit. When, when you measure yourself by what somebody else does, that is not wise. When you measure success, or you measure failure, or you measure righteousness, or you measure goodness by what somebody else is doing, that is not wise. It's either going to create in you pride, great pride because you think you're really good, or it's going to create in you not humility, but depression, which is not humility. It's going to make not a friend out of that other person, but it's going to make an enemy out of that other person, is it not? This, this competitive mindset of being better or being right or being above or being smarter or being uh, more talented than somebody else is not, um, is not something that motivates us to love people. Listen, God has not called us to be successful in the world's eyes, which says the very opposite of what I'm teaching you this morning. The world's standard is to compete with people. Until you can, the world standard is, is everybody is a stepping stone for you to reach your goals. Listen, God's standard is not that. God's standard, God's, God's purpose for your life, God's presence within you is that you will love people. It's so interesting. A lost person will come up to us and start an argument with us. And our job is to love them. Our job is to show them the love of Christ. And we will argue back with them about a football game. Or something that's really, really small that doesn't really matter, but it definitely isn't going to make us a friend. I remember when I moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, 15 years ago. I'm a diehard Husker fan, right? Okay, and still am, sorry. Okay, but I still am. Give me a few years and maybe I'll change, but... I remember going there, and I remember sitting in a guy's, a guy's house on national championship night. The first, first year we were there, Ohio State won the national championship. I was so mad. And I went to somebody else's house that was an unbeliever, and I went there to fellowship with them, to, to get to know them. They were a brother of somebody who was in the church. And I went there, and I argued with them, and I spited them. And you know something? They never came to my church. Go figure, right? Well, what happened? What happened is, is my competitive spirit hindered me from being a gospel person to those people. I should have just shut my mouth, bit my tongue until it bled or whatever, right? It's not going to motivate love. Yes, it's the opposite of what the world thinks. Yes, you may not be successful in, God, in the world's eyes, but you will be usable and you will be successful in God's eyes. Amen? Amen? That's what we're here for. We're here to go against what the world expects and do what God expects. We're here to minister to people. You know, that's why the people in Florida and the people in Texas are experiencing so much blessings right now. And, and, and I mean blessings in the sense of, of, of recovery. And the people who are going to be there helping people recover and loving people, for the most part, are going to be churches and ministries. Why? Because we know our job is to love people. 
That's what we're called to do. We can't be competitive with them. Go on with me, number four. This is an important one. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Number four is surprised by the unresponsive. Folks, get this into your mind. Do not be in awe that the world doesn't hate you, doesn't love you, doesn't hate you. Do not be in awe that the world hates you. Here's what we do. We, 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 we look to love the world and we look for a, for a reciprocating love and it's just not there. And then what happens to our love? What happens, guys, when you love your wife and they don't love you back? Well, I'll give it six months. No, that's not what the Bible calls for. You give it forever. And if your wife never loves you back, you keep on. That's right. And if the world never loves us back, if the world continues to hate us, Jesus said the world has hated me. Don't be surprised if it hates you. The world has persecuted me. Don't be surprised if it's persecuted you. But it doesn't give you the right to hate them in return. Right? It doesn't give us the right to hate people because they hate us. Here's what John is saying. Don't be surprised if you don't get the response that you're looking for. Guess what? Keep loving. Keep on doing the right thing. That's the presence of Christ in you. It's it's easy, John 5 or Matthew 5. It's easy to love those who love you back, but love your enemies. Right? This is what God calls us to. This is the power of God in you. It's not that you can love the person sitting next to you, but you can love the person who hurt you. And maybe even the person that continues to hurt you. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. When we get surprised if the world hates us, we will start to hate them back. And, and I'm be real honest with you this morning. We're not far from that place. The, the, the evangelical movement isn't hard from that. We see something wrong and we don't stop and pray and ask God to bring salvation and ask God to bring help and to bring guidance. We, we condemn right away. Don't we? Don't be surprised that the world hates you. Don't be surprised that the world hates God, but keep doing what you're supposed to do. Lastly, he says this, by this it is evident who are the children of God, or not, go, go down to verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The last thing is, is to understand the slippery slope of hatred. Know this. Murder doesn't start out as murder. Okay? In, in other words, you don't murder, the, okay, that person offended me, so I'm going to murder them, right? It's a slippery slope. You become frustrated with them, right? You become disappointed in them. You become angry at them. Then you become bitter towards them. Then you become malicious towards them. And then it ends up in murder. What John is saying here is this, that it starts out you hate somebody, and ultimately it's going to end up with you murdering them in your heart. He's not talking about murdering somebody on the outside with a knife. But, but the reality of it is, is what John is saying is, is, is that you murder somebody in your heart before God, that's, that's just as bad. Or it's bad. 
maybe not just as bad. Okay? We need to understand that it's a slippery slope. If you're bitter at somebody right now, if you're angry with somebody right now, and maybe, maybe you're just frustrated with your wife or frustrated with your husband or, or maybe whatever it might be or your neighbor or something, if you're not careful, it's going to grow. Anybody experienced that before? Anybody had anger towards somebody that became bitterness? Anybody have bitterness that became malicious? I knew no one was going to raise their hand on that one. <laughs> I didn't ask the last one about murder, so I leave that one alone. But it's a slip. We've got to know this. John is saying you've got to know that it's a slippery, slippery slope. I can only imagine that Cain and Abel's relationship probably wasn't too bad until this all happened. Now, the scripture don't tell us, doesn't tell us that, but I think the picture is, is how fast anger and bitterness and maliciousness can escalate to being in a moment where they kill the other person. And that's the way it is. We've got to be guarded, not against murdering somebody, but listen, we've got to be guarded against being angry with someone. Paul says in Ephesians chapter number four, he says, do not give place to the devil. And he says, do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. In other words, don't let your, don't let your anger last until tomorrow. Don't let you deal with it. Because if it lasts tomorrow, it's no longer anger, is it? What is it then? I'm gonna, re, I'm gonna quote that scripture right to you guys. I gotta, I gotta look from Ron like, I don't think he quoted that scripture right. I know Ron has been there. So Ephesians 4, 6 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. Don't let it happen. Don't. It's slippery. Tomorrow it won't be wrath. It'll be bitterness and then it'll be maliciousness and then it'll be destruction. Listen to Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let me close with these words. We are called to pursue righteousness. We are called to love God. We are called to love Christ. And we are called to love what he loves. And one of those things is righteousness. However, the pursuit and love for these things, absent of a pursuit and love for people, is harmful. He tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter number 13, he says in verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am as a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. We can have all of the right answers. We can have all of the right theology. We can have all of the right whatever and not love. And we can not only be worthless in God's kingdom, but the idea in, 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 in 1 Corinthians 13 is this. We're not just worthless, but we're actually an obstacle. Nobody likes a clanging gong in their ears. Right? And some of you have heard a clanging gong in your ear, and some of us have been a clanging gong in people's ears. It just simply means that we don't care about you, but we're still going to tell you things. Right? I'm going to tell you what to do, but I don't love you. 
Cling, cling, cling. Right? Nobody wants to hear that. You love people, and then you can help people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day, and thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge that we have from your word, and thank you for the people that have come out today to hear it preached and to sing praises to you, and we pray that you will just bless us today, that you will um, help us to take these truths home, not to leave them here. They're, um, They're meant to be applied. And Lord God, that you would help us to apply them to our lives. We pray your blessing upon the remainder of our day and then our week as well. We give you the glory for it in Christ's name.